this is Alan with another of my podcasts, Hospice uh, Spiritual Journey. Glad you're listening. I do really appreciate that. People will take their time and, uh, and listen to what I have to say. Hopefully there's something you'll find uh, beneficial or inspiring or challenging, whatever. Just two things. I want to get right into what I have to say today. First of all, if you uh, want to contact me, you have questions about uh, grief or hospice or spirituality, whatever, you can contact me at hospicestorytime at gmail.com or alankeithpoe at gmail.com, and it's A-L-A-N-K-E-I-T-H-P-O-E. And also, once again, um, I appreciate uh, Sharon Berger for allowing me to use her music, and it's so, uh, it's so good, I would like to use more of it. Hopefully, I'll figure out a way to do that at a later time. But, you know, go to Sharon Berger music.com and you uh, can find out more about her or go to YouTube, look her up on YouTube and see her playing some of her songs. So thanks, Sharon. Uh, appreciate it so much. All right, let me say uh, this before I start today. I, if, if I could do just one podcast and have people listen, listen to it, it would be this one, I think, at least so far. Uh, because it's an important story to me, and there are just things here that um, I, I need to say, want to say, and hopefully that you will find it helpful. I, if I pause at times, I have jotted some notes here because there's things I don't want to forget to say. So if I, if I pause and say, hey, you know, <laughs> let me see if there's something else here, then, then you'll understand that. Because I like to do these as just though you were sitting here, we were talking, and uh, like I say, as I went worked on this this week. There were some things I thought, you know, I don't want to forget to say that. And then I might even want to say differently as we, as we go through here, all right? So Dying to Live, the story of the first person I ever watched die. I'll just call him Bob. Wonderful man, in, probably in his mid-60s. Great wife. And um, so I had just finished my orientation, two weeks of orientation, and they asked me to go visit him in his home. At that time, the inpatient unit had just opened. It was brand new, beautiful place. So there wasn't enough patients for me to work there, just there. So I would see home patients and I would come to the inpatient either uh, in the morning or, or in the afternoon after I'd finished up with other things. So here I was on my way out to this, to see Bob and I was nervous, obviously. I was feeling some anxiety. I had dealt with people my whole adult life. That's what I did. But this was different. I was going to walk into a home where someone was dying. They knew they were dying. They knew that's why they were in hospice. And I was just a little nervous about it. I think most people would have been on their first time. But when I walk in, it walked in, it wasn't long until I just felt... Um, relaxed. They made me feel relaxed and instead of, instead of me encouraging them. And they told stories about life, about their relationship. There was laughter, which took me back a little bit. I guess I had in my head some crazy idea that I was going to walk in there and everything was going to be somber. Everybody was going to be sad. I was going to have to try to find some words to encourage them, but it wasn't anything like that. I'm not saying it isn't like that sometimes, 
Anytime you walk into a home or into a room, you're not sure what to expect. Um, in some ways, that's another thing I like about what I'm doing. Anyway, I finished the visit. It was quite a long visit. And a few days later, the nurse came to me. I was at the inpatient unit. And the nurse came to me and said, they're bringing Bob here today. He wants to die at the inpatient unit rather than at home. And a lot of people opt for that. Others want to die at home, but some don't. And the great thing about the inpatient unit is you can, it's beautiful, it's like your bedroom at home, and you can die with your, uh, your family around you. So that was the choice he made. They brought him in, I went into his room, sat with him and his wife again, and we once you know, just had a great talk. And I may have said this before, it's so wonderful that in this process, people invite me into their life and there becomes an intimate relationship quickly, almost instantly. So we had become friends and we're talking and enjoying ourselves. And every once in a while, his wife wouldn't be there and I would go in and have private conversations with him. And one day, this always stuck with me. That's why I could remember to tell you about it. One day he said to me, why do we have to be dying to reevaluate what's really important in life? Good question. Was my life meaningful enough that it made somebody else's life better? And then questions that I couldn't answer, but it was almost a rhetorical question. Why did I find that so important in my life? Why did I give so much time to this? And those were the questions that I hadn't heard before because this was my first patient. But they were great questions that challenged me um, every time I left his room. One day, a nurse came and said, Bob is dying. He has just a little bit of time left, his wife and daughter in the room and asking for you to come. So. I walked into the room and the wife was on one side of the bed holding his hand. The daughter was on the other side of the bed holding his hand. The first thing that struck me was the silence. It was more than silence. How do I put that in words? I don't know. There was something sacred about it. Maybe the silence was bigger than we were. So I stood at the end of the bed knowing intuitively not to say anything. To speak would have been profane. I truly believe that. So I just, I stood at the end of the bed. His wife turned and uh, I can see her right now as I'm talking about this. She turned and nodded and gave me a little smile and she had tears and the daughter did the same. And the three of us with the nurse over in the corner stood there around his bed as he took uh, his last breaths, his breathing became more shallow and more shallow, and he took his last breath. The nurse came over, pronounced him, and the wife and daughter both laid their head on the bed, um, just, I guess the word is sobbing. So I walked over to the wife, again, not knowing what to say, put my hand on her shoulder, and she stood and she held on to me and cried as though I could, in some way, she could 
she could transfer some of her grief onto me, that some way I could take some of this pain and hurt from her. Obviously, I couldn't, but uh, I stood there and did what, you know, did the best I could do. She sat down, we, the three of us, um, sat by his bed. Again, they told stories and talked about what he had meant to, to them, to both of them, and to so many other people. Um, another thing that happened to me while I was standing at the end of that bed is if, if someone had asked me before that day, Alan, are you going to die? I would have said, sure, I'm going to die. Everybody's going to die. But I, I learned something. Because standing there, watching someone else die, it was like throwing a bucket of water, cold water, right into my face. And I said, I'm going to die. This is real. I, it's the only way out of here. I'm going to die. I, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't sad. I guess I was challenged. Um, I guess I was realizing that uh, life is fragile. Um, and even though it's a cliche, I, I'm not promised another day. Um, this moment is what's important. And uh, that was, uh, so this, this Bob, you know, he, he became my friend and his life and his death taught me a lot. So dying to live. I want to tell a story from uh, Matthew's Gospel and... Uh, you know, I, I think I said last time, I just love a lot of these stories. It, once you understand, and I, I, I think I keep bringing this up, but once you realize that the Bible, these ancient books, as some call them, were not written in the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century. On it. These are ancient, as I said, books. And the customs were different. The politics were different. Jesus was a Jew speaking to Jews under Roman, uh, under Roman oppression and the language was different. But once you get, and, and there's plenty of resource this day and time for you to look these things up. There are books. I told you about uh, Thomas Cahill's book, um, The Gift of the Jews. He's written another one about Jesus' life, before his life, after his life. So there's plenty of resources out there. And when you do that, they come alive in a different way than I've ever experienced. So I've become, uh, uh, I've almost fallen in love, I guess, with these stories in ways that I never was before. So this story I'm gonna tell, there's a sentence in this story that is famous, but one of the most misunderstood, misused sentences in the New Testament. Jesus has his disciples around him, and he, he's saying to them, look, uh, I'm going to die. You know, I've upset the government because I wouldn't go along with their program. I've upset the religious community because I wouldn't go along with their program. I have challenged both, and they're going to kill me. So I'm going to die. And of course, they didn't understand that. They thought when the Messiah came, he would over, 
overcome the government and they would he would be another David. David, king of the Jews. And just like David conquered their enemies and gave them a, a period of prosperity and peace, they thought this second David would do the same. And Jesus kept trying to say to them, no, that's not what this is about. There's the empire of the Romans and there's the empire of God. There's the kingdom of Caesar. There's the kingdom of the divine. And I'm here to tell you about the kingdom of the divine. And they're going to kill me. And then he said to them an interesting thing. He said, you know what? Uh, unless you die, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're going to lose your life. Now, people say, well, bearing your cross is, you know, you've got these burdens in life and you're supposed to carry them around. And, and uh, no. <laughs> cross is simply an instrument of death. Something has to die before you can experience life as it was meant to be. So then the famous sentence, he says to them, what is it going to profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? The word soul there is the same word as life. So he said, what if you gain everything, but you lose the very core of yourself, of real life? Then what? So this is not about gaining the world and, and not getting to go to heaven. This is about right now. What's happening in our life now? So there are three things I, I believe that must die in our life. You know, if we're going to um, lose our or, or gain real life, then uh, there's three things we have to let die. I... Um, <laughs> I think I heard these three words somewhere. I was driving in my car one day and uh, they came to me. So I don't think they're original. <laughs> I don't think they're original with me. If they are, good for me. If they're not, then uh, sorry to uh, whoever I'm stealing this from. And I'm going to build on these three words. So what has to die? Our desire for possessions, our hunger for power, and our longing for prestige. Now, Thomas Keating has a book called um, the, the Human Condition. It's a small book, but profound book. And uh, he tells the story, you know, it's an old joke, really old, and it's not funny, but it's the joke about the guy who comes home and he can't find his keys. So he's looking in, in the, the street light and these guys come along and say, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my keys to the house. I can't get in. And so they said, well, we'll help you. And they're all down on the grass. And uh, they said, so you sure you dropped it here? And he said, no, no, I dropped it over there somewhere by the uh, porch. And they said, well, why are you looking here? And he said, because the street light's here. Now again, it's, it's corny. It's not really funny. I heard it years ago, but he uses that to make a point. And here, here's the quote. Here's what he says. This is the human condition to be without the true source of happiness, which is the experience of the presence of God. What we experience is our desperate search for happiness where it cannot possibly be found. The key is not in the grass. It was not lost outside ourselves. It was lost inside ourselves. 
That is where we need to look for it. The chief characteristic of the human condition is that everybody is looking for this key and nobody knows where to find it. I underlined those, I highlighted that, that paragraph and uh, every once in a while I go back and read it uh, because I need to remind myself. You know, I've lost the key and sometimes I even forget where to look for the key. And the key wasn't lost on the outside of me, the key was lost on the inside of me. So first of all, what needs to die is our desire for possessions. Uh, questions we need to ask, I think, is can I find what my source, my soul desires through what I possess? Um, that's a question everybody needs to answer. Ask. Now, here's what I was going to say. You, people say, well, you can't take it with you. Well, true. But guess what? It's not just your possessions you can't take with you. And I'll take a little detour here. You can't take your anger with you. You can't take your ego with you. You can't take your resentments with you. On and on I could go. Those things have to die. Those things have to disappear as well because they, can't, they will not be allowed, as the Celtics say, to pass through the veil into the next world. So my feeling is I might as well start trying to get rid of them now, if I can. But back to the possessions. When I said this earlier, when um, people are dying, they never say, I mean never say, I wish I had more money. They never say, I wish we would have bought that dream house that we always wanted. Um, they never say, boy, I wish I would have climbed the corporate ladder. I always wanted to get that vice president position. <laughs> you think that matters to them now? Those are the kind of questions they do not ask. Uh, and obviously reasons. So why do we ask them now? I'm not saying it's wrong to make money. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice house or to climb the corporate ladder. But once we buy into that's what I need, I need those kind of possessions for my life to be meaningful, for, my, for, my, for me to have happiness, for me to be what I want to be. Once you do that, you've lost yourself. What does it profit you if you gain that new house, but you lose your real life? What does it profit you if you got that big promotion, but you lost your life, your true life, meaningfulness? Um, so those, that's what has to die, and it's hard for that to happen. It really is. Um, because we live in a culture that saturates us with this. You watch commercials. You'll be happier if you had this car. You'd be so happy if you had these clothes. This toothpaste will make your life better because people are seeing your, your teeth are white. Um, so our, we are in a produce-consume culture, and so we are convinced that the more we have, the happier we'll be and the more meaningful our life will be. Guess what? <laughs> That's not true. And it's counter-cultural to believe that. You're swimming upstream. You know the happiest person I ever watched die was a monk from a monastery close by. He was so happy. 
so joyous. We had the best talk. He talked about, and one day he told me that uh, how crazy God thinks denominations are. He said, that God must think those things are crazy. He said, that didn't come from God. And so we had these wonderful talks. The guy never owned a car. He never uh, had to worry about what, where his position was at work. He was a monk who had given himself to prayer and to service, and he was so happy. His life was simple. I'm not saying we can all do that. I'm not saying we can all go live in a monastery or, or we all have to give up everything. I'm simply saying here's a man who lived with nothing but shelter and food and the joy of prayer and serving others. And if I had to pick out a person that died the easiest, died laughing, died with joy, it was him. So that was always an example as well. Hey, these things aren't going to, they aren't going to make you die better. Uh, they're not going to uh, make your life better. So possessions. We need to die to the, to the uh, deep, deep um, desire we have for things. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Maybe during this corona uh, issue, this, this pandemic, maybe we'll, we'll learn that a little bit. Maybe we'll learn, you know, I didn't, don't really have to have as much as I thought I did. That would be a great thing to come out of this, wouldn't it? Okay, the second that needs to die is our hunger for power. This is a big one. Because what I'm talking about here is our need to be in control. How many of us deal with that? Probably all of us at some level. Uh, we want to control people. And we want to control people so they'll make my life better. And they won't make my life worse. So that becomes a dependency issue as well. So i got to control them, and we'll find lots of ways to do that. You know, we might use guilt, shame, fear, rewards, lies, all kinds of manipulation to control them. Some people come up with great ways to manipulate. And I believe it becomes so much a part of us that uh, we don't even realize we're doing it. You know? uh, churches use guilt, shame, fear, all that to control. So it's, it's, the nations do it. All kinds of tribes do it. Families. Mm. The need to control, and I'm going to tell you, it's destructive, and it also creates tremendous amounts of anxiety and stress. We even try to, to control events uh, because we don't want events to make us uncomfortable or bring us pain. So we even try to, to step in and control things that are just beyond our control. And some part of the healthy part of life, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is to know what I need to step into and to make changes or make it better or be there for somebody. And when I am stepping over my boundaries and I'm kind of trying to control the person or the situation or the event. It's the source, of, as I said, of a lot of anxiety. Okay. I want to use another story. Adam and Eve. And I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to hear some of the, some of your phones turn off or whatever, but um, 
and others are going to, you'll be right with me on this. Um, Thomas Cahill, I'm trying to decide where to start with this. Thomas Cahill made the point that only recently, as far as in, in light of history, in relationship to history, have people argued and wanted to know if stories in the Bible are true or not. That was not important to them. What was important is, why was somebody writing this, and what does it say to me? What were they trying to say through this story? We spend uh, tons of our energy and our time and our money trying to talk about whether a story is true or not. And it distracts us from what it's meant to do, and that is it has things to say to us. So the first three chapters of Genesis have probably been as controversial as any passage. Um, first of all, I will say, whatever you want to believe about this is fine. You need to understand that the first three chapters of Genesis is a poem. There are two, there are two creation accounts in those three chapters. Um, so whatever you believe, I, I just, I want to lay that out there. And I think that it, trying to, to make this uh, a, a point of contention just divides us and causes us to not look and, and it's maybe a corny statement, to plumb the depths of what this poem is saying to us. Um, so that's my little sidetrack. Um, I know what I believe about this, you believe what you want to believe about it, but for God's sake, Let's not make it a divisive issue. Let's get here and see what's being said to us. Okay, enough of that little sermon. So the, the serpent, representing evil, comes to Eve and says, hey, uh, so God said you couldn't eat this, right? And he said, yeah, we're not supposed to eat that. And then, you know, the story goes on. And finally, he says to her, well, you know, God knows if you eat this, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Now, James Finley makes an extremely good point about this story that just opened it up for me. I love this. He said, well, I thought that being like God was the whole point here. I thought it's his creation. We are to be becoming like him. That's what Jesus said. Um, so what's the deal here? Why is he, she being tempted to do something we're supposed to do? And Finley lays out the punchline because he, she was being tempted to try to be God without God. Now think about that. Isn't that, that is so great. She was being tempted to try to be God without God. And that's what the desire to be control in control is all about. It's the desire to be God without God. And that's why it's so destructive. Uh, and so, uh, that the power issue, again, is an issue that is um, individual, it is community, it is nation, it is tribes, because we want to be God, but we don't want God to, to be involved in that. 
All right, enough about that. The third one is our longing for prestige. Um, we want to be liked. We want to be accepted. We want to be important. We don't want to be rejected. We'd like to be admired, popular, even a celebrity. Um, I read somebody said that's why Facebook's so important. You could be a celebrity on there for a while. So those are things we want. Now, it's not wrong to want to be liked. It's not wrong to want to be accepted. Um, some of the others are not so great, but that's not wrong in and of itself. But it's why I need those things. Um, do I think that having those things will give me life? So what does it gain you? What does it profit you if you gain fame, if everybody in the world likes you, if you're the most important person in all the world, but you lose your life? Thomas Merton, I think, was the first one to come up with the phrase, the true self and the false self. And, and it's just a different way of saying a lot of, of things. The false self, you could call it ego if you wanted. So his point was, and he's taking some psychology and putting it just in very spiritual terms, easy to understand. So he said the false self is that self that we developed to find, to make sure we're liked, to make sure we're accepted, to make sure we're important. In other words, to make life work for us. At least that was, that's what we believe. So we have this false self. Um, and it becomes so much a part of us that we don't even think that maybe this is not really who I am, who I was meant to be. Then he has, he used the term true self. That's the self that we were created and intended to be. That's the real you. Some people use the term the authentic you. The false self wants prestige, to be liked, to be accepted because it needs it. It needs those things to feel alive, to feel real. Ego longs for, those, for that prestige and will do pretty much anything at some time to get it. The true self, the true self, eh, it's nice to be liked. It's nice that I'm accepted. Maybe in this particular situation, it's, it's kind of good to be seen as important or even admired for something nice that I did, but I don't need it. The true self says, I don't need that. It's nice when it comes along, but once you need that, you lose yourself. You lose, um, I hate to use the word control of yourself but because we just use that as a bad term, but you understand what I'm saying. I, I give somebody else, here's one. I'm giving somebody else power over my life. And that's bondage. That's slavery. So we need to, the longing for prestige needs to die. All right. Um, that's enough of that, I guess. Let me make a conclusion here. What's really important to you? Um, what are you trying to gain that is so important that you're willing to lose your life? What do you need to die to so that you can live? 
What needs to die so that you can be the person you are meant to be? What needs to die so that you can be free? Free from the bondage of possessions, of the need for power, of the longing to be of prestige. What is it you think will bring you life? Whatever it is, it will rob you of life. Again, I'm not saying that these things aren't wrong. I'm simply saying when you want those things, need those things, want to use those things to give you true life, they become destructive. What's it profit to you? You gain all these things, power, prestige, possessions, and you look back someday and you say, hmm, I lost my life. That teaching that Jesus did ends up with one last sentence that you don't hear about. I'm not sure I've ever heard it talked about. Because he said then, or what will they give in return for their life? I may be taking this out of context. I don't know. I hope not. I try not to do that because that's where we get so much destructive doctrines and teaching anyway. But to me, working with hospice, what I hear him saying, what would those people give just to return and live life the way they know now it needs to be lived? Well, guess what? You and I have a chance to do that. We have a chance today to let go of our huge desire for possessions, our false belief that we have to be in control, our constant chasing after prestige. When we let go of those, we can enjoy them in healthy ways, but also live the fulfillment a life of meaningfulness as God intended us to live. All right. Um, I will end with this kind of a blessing. I read recently, and Paul was writing to these people at Corinth who were really a mess, and uh, he ended it by this blessing. He said, May the God of love and peace be with you. And uh, that came to me this morning, and I want to say it to you. Offer you that blessing. May God, may the God of love and peace be with you today and every day. Thank you very much.